Progressive presents Forest Metaphors about bundling your home and auto. In sports, three goals is a hat trick. And when you bundle your home and auto with Progressive, you get a hat trick of great savings and round-the-clock protection. So you might be thinking, wait, that's two things. A hat trick is three. But in this metaphor, great savings counts as two goals and so does round-the-clock protection. So it's like four goals and that's more than three. It's basic math. Forced Metaphors, presented by Progressive. Bundle and protect today. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Discount not available in all states or situations. Welcome to Get Out Rap. Today's episode features one of the most prominent people in our industry, Martin Hill Wilson. He is extremely interesting. Let's get straight into the episode. Enjoy. Great. Martin Hill Wilson, thanks very much for coming on the podcast. I've spoken to you a few times about trying to um, come on. And as I said in the introduction, you're probably, if you're in the contact centre industry, you're probably someone that doesn't need that much of a, an introduction because for every conference I've ever attended, going way back actually, um, not wanting to make you feel old, but you, you've been there talking about the future state of our industry or something that's that's relevant. So Welcome to Get Out a Wrap, and thanks for giving up your time. Well, Martin, thank you very much for inviting me on. I've noticed what you've been doing uh, and been attracted to it, so it's very uh, kind of you to invite me into your space for an hour. Looking forward to it. Well, one of the things I think it would be remiss of me not to ask is, you know, a lot of people see you up on stage or over this last year through a screen um, talking about our industry, but... What, what's your sort of background for those people that don't know your sort of journey to where you are today? What what is it? Well, I suppose if you go back to uh, when I was at university, I actually did theology, which has proven to be quite useful. I don't know if I'd do it again now, but anything with anology normally is fairly interesting. And uh, I must say that, um, well, probably with a nod slightly to the American, the state of American. At society right now, the, the, the relationship that people have with their God tells you an awful lot about the people themselves. And I found that to be a very, very useful psychological context, if you want. Um, so that's always interested me. I mean, I'm just basically interested in the fact that I'm alive, quite frankly, and yeah. that life takes place. I can't find anything more compelling as a topic. So I've, I've just tried to find things to do in life, which has helped support me, you know, do that. Uh, and to that degree, um, I found myself after university joining a group who were highly progressive at the time. And I spent probably three or four years doing lots of experiential based work training, you know, development. I thought that was really fabulous. And we did some interesting things, you know, as an expression of um, supporting people in their own personal development and ambition. So, you know, we, we had a recording studio with Tony Visconti. Uh, we built microlites and sold them to the SAS, you know, all sorts of crazy stuff and, and, and bits and pieces that we did along the way. And one of the things was we were looking to flip some of that pure personal development work into um, a commercial context. And that commercial context at the time um, demanded that we got in there fairly easily. So at the time, getting into a call center was no more than Bakelite phones and yellow pages. And what we brought to that party was a very, very highly developed uh, competency around of communication, particularly. Uh, and we set up shop in a little street just opposite Hoban Circus down in London. And 
Uh, I can remember that we used to have morning sessions and afternoon sessions that, you know, we only had about 30 or 40 people doing these projects, but they were open house and we brought clients in and they just loved the energy that we had and the culture. And we used to do these countdowns before morning and afternoon sessions, which were again, all to do with breakthrough, all to do with communication, all to do with connection. And we experimented. Uh, we, we, we did all sorts of crazy stuff. We learned how to sell over the phone I think air uh, leases for airlines, which were 50,000 quid a pop or something, you know, just to buy. Or I think we had a shift at four o'clock in the morning sell, selling contraceptives for cows to farmers, you know. And, and that was just really, really crazy, wonderful things that we did. And people really, really enjoyed that. And, and at the time, that was, you know, that was messaging, that was um, social, that was digital first or whatever it was, because before that, you had to meet face to face. And so it was an entirely new idea uh, and uh, that quickly grew. And I think that we, you know, were pretty much the first out of the box. We weren't the only people. There were people like Decisions and Merit that came on, you know, slightly before or after or whatever it was at the time. But we were certainly instrumental building that first generation of contact centres. Already in a couple of minutes, there's been microlites to the SAS and contraceptives to cows. We had a colourful past, yeah, <laughs> that's for sure. And uh, I, anyway, we built them. I personally, to be to be blunt, although I am focused on the space, didn't spend a great deal of time on that. I had my own little projects in software and, and, and information stuff. And, and I still actually remained really fascinated by the dynamics of people, transformation and change. And so one thing I did then, and I still actually do today, is I just love building programmes. So. I think we first engaged when we talked about performance and quality, yeah. you know, and I was running my own little thing on that. I've got a thing that we're going to talk about in a minute on Emotive CX. And I've just loved always taking a problem and turning that into a learning experience, very much into co-design and those kinds of principles. And back then I was doing stuff on communication and uh, I used to actually sell a lot of that material up to senior senior groups, you know, getting boards to communicate better and what impact that would have on what we'd now call employee engagement. Mm. I can remember the very first sort of CX programs I was exploring and we had a great one that we did with um, uh, British Midland, you know, the airline. Uh, and I got, I had uh, culturally, this is fantastic. We had the chairman, we had the pilots and the baggage handlers all sitting around in a circle, cross-legged, talking about who owns the problem. Uh, and, and, you know, that was dramatic because baggage handlers and pilots are culturally as yeah. widely apart as you can possibly make it. And of course, the story was, we're all part of that particular thing. So it was just always fascinated me, you know, that kind of <clears throat> line of work. And then I never, and then I, you know, I ended up running that business and it had developed into a consultancy by then because we discovered we'd learnt lots and people wanted that pure know-how. Um, then we got sold to Dimension Data. Um, I then did five years um, in that, i.e. learning about technology, did another five years with DataPoint and discovered there's a huge gap between how the technology community communicate their value and how we, in a business context, understand our needs. But there's a huge gap between those two things. And so a lot of the work I currently do is still about trying to fill in that gap, explaining and talking about technology in that kind of futuristic way. But I certainly, to your point, have a temperament for always being interested in what's around the corner and up the hill. So, you know, my family always say that if, if they ever go for a walk with me or anybody does, I'm always appear to be rude because I'm walking 
always ahead of the rest of the group. It's just an instinct I've got. Uh, and, and, you know, having done my time running businesses and everything, the brain food consulting part of my life has given me the chance to only do stuff I like, only work with people I like, and, and in all honesty, to have a view of the future, which I know doesn't really conform very strongly to the kind of culture and the kind of operating model that we're only just recently escaping from. Um, and, I, and there was a bit of me, certainly, that felt, back to my ology, that looking into the lens of a contact centre is a very, very, very good litmus test for how that brand is really orientated towards people, whether customers or indeed employees. Um, and and there's, a tr there's a truth to be had there. And since that is the case, I have been very, you know, disturbed really by where the industry's gone over the four decades that I've sort of been involved, because it strikes me every time we have a recession, we take that benefit into the call centre, squeeze it, send it up north, send it offshore, bring it back, you know, and do all the rest of it. And it's only just recently that its role and central importance relative to enterprise and strategic customer experience has really come to the fore. Um, and, and obviously, and we'd never built them like that. So uh, there's a bit of me with a bit of a sense of responsibility that it's gone in some respects into an understandable but a wrong direction in terms of its emphasis. You know, it should be about value creation, not about cost reduction. Uh, and the way that we've treated people can't be the right way to treat people if we indeed want them to go the extra mile and really do the great stuff. And that's you know why some of the work that you have been doing with your teams is is very powerful because it's trying to redress some of that cultural imbalance you know and get people to do it and it's taken us a long time as an industry to be anything other than a dustpan and brush and therefore working on margin wafer thin budgets and trying to articulate our roi has taken a long time i think actually the pandemic has done us a great deal of good in the sense that our worth has been completely proven um, and I think a lot of CX people have gone, gosh, without that, we really would have had a difficult time knowing how fickle customers are at the moment and how important customer loyalty is, you know, at this particular point in time. So, um, you know, my, my career has, has really been around of being interested in, 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 in human engagement, if you want. And I think the customer service has provided a great arena in which to, you know, practice various different ways of doing it. But my view of those things has always been deliberately elevated, trying to encourage people to get as far as they can in, you know, trying to meet that, you know, particular standard and encourage people that it doesn't have to all be about a grind. You know, it can actually be about something much more valuable because it does make me laugh in a, in a rather sort of black humoured way to think about the way that we monitor and measure the, you know, every microsecond that I cannot imagine any other function in an organization submitting themselves to that level of no. can you imagine marketing being told to measure themselves every minute of every day in terms of their productivity You'd be told <laughs> to walk never, that door very quickly. <laughs> what you mentioned there's, there's a lot to unpack that's all very interesting you mentioned there the for a lot of the period that you've been in the environment applying your kind of um, know-how that you've been disturbed by um would you say more how the owners, the senior leadership of companies view contact centres as cost centres, as opposed to, like, as you say, value creators, that, that disturbance. Um, where do you, what do you think that was born out of? Well, I think, I think that, uh, as I said, I think it, it, it sort of very easily correlates to every decade we get so greedy and we have to pay penance and it's called the recession. 
Um, and every time a business has to respond to that, it's about cost cutting. And there has definitely been uh, historically a move away from face-to-face -face field service, field sales, into saying, can we deliver that through inside sales? Let's do it out of a call center. Let's do the service component out of a call center. So that was one of the first benefits that you got, you know, losing that cost. Then you had to make the call center itself cheaper. So you would say, would you run that out of London? I don't think so. <laughs> would you run that out of somewhere which has got a lower cost base? I think so, which typically has been outside of the major conurbations in the UK. Mm. Then when you've got that benefit of you know, taken to the bottom line, where else do you go? And I can remember when we were in merchants, probably the peak of our profitability, you know, we were selling um, a, a, an agent hour at 28 pounds an hour. And that was for things like just refreshing a prepaid card, which was yeah. ridiculous, you know. Yeah. Um, and then suddenly folk offshore were knocking on the door for four pounds 50 an hour. And, and whilst, you know, customer service remains primarily the delivery of outcomes through live assistance, um, albeit we've migrated slightly from voice to text over the last decade and so, but fundamentally the cost base of your budgets is predicated upon 70, 80% cost around of headcount. And until that changes, you're gonna look the cheapest, um, you know, form of that. And now I, I personally believe having been in the business that I don't think it's very easy to outsource culture. Uh, you know, one of my objections to that is, is that it's very difficult and just anglicizing a name really doesn't get you to connect at all. No. And it's not just the fact that the line, the quality of, you know, VoIP might not be as good from a certain offshore center than as it is locally. I think it's just the resonance that you've got understanding a mindset, understanding somebody's problems, understanding the way they choose to express themselves. I don't even understand English people and I've lived here all my life. You know what I mean? <laughs> so why I assume to understand another culture in that way, I think is difficult. But interestingly, because I think that voice is the most intimate way that we connect with people in a contact center context, um, text to me is, is, is a reduction of that intimacy. Um, you know, and we reinsert that through emojis to try to you know, connect yeah. in the way that voice has it built in real time. Yeah. And, and it strikes me, I think it's no coincidence that offshore chat has proven to be successful as measured by NPS and you know, um, CSAT, because I don't think it's so obvious to people um, that actually it's a different person who's doing that. But I think when you've got two people talking with each other, the differences are, are quite pronounced. It's not impossible, but you, you know, it, 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 can be, it can be really difficult. So anyway, the whole thing to answer the question became about reducing cost. Um, and, and the other part is, I think there was for a long time, you know, if there was a reason to be concerned with this stuff, the argument would be that customer um, service was um, certainly an opportunity to lose a customer, but seldom an opportunity to win a customer. Yeah. And therefore, the easiest thing in life, which is sales, you know, still most cultures uh, and organizations have that as their primary objective. You know, they'll start the year again with another sales campaign. And it always makes me wonder why sales teams go to the Bahamas. Marketing wonders why they were filling up pipeline with ungrateful salespeople and customer <laughs> service gets outsourced offshore. How, you know, what happened there on a year's collective effort? <laughs> you know, and it just tells you what the priorities are still in businesses. Now, you'll still, you know, if you go and get a Gartner report or a Forrester report and you ask CEOs what their most important thing is, they'll, they'll tell you CX these days. Yeah. If you read beneath the lines and say, 
what's the gap then between what you think you're doing and how your customers think you're doing? You've got that traditional 70% reality gap going down because actually it still remains a nominal sign up thing in the same way nominally I'm into the environment, nominally I'm into diversity and inclusion, nominally I'm into CX. I don't mean it's insincere, but there's just so many other things that CEOs have to do. And at the end of the day, they live and die by you know the numbers and they live and die by getting the right balance between how much they spend and how much comes back in again at the end of the day. And in that sense, customer service to extent still remains, I think, an afterthought. You know, I love you when you buy something from me. Do you really have to talk to me between <laughs> that and the next time you're going to buy something from me? And there's a kind of resentment at that point. And, and you know, the, 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 the value that can be architected into that encounter and supported is only just really filtering through into corporate strategic planning, you know, what that really means. And the CX community has certainly helped to articulate that point, you know, at the end of the day. And I think that um, we've also seen uh, significant demonstrations of what fabulous can look like from, you know, organizations still able to whip up some CV, you know, some VC money, um, use some new API cloud-based technology and fundamentally reinvent a marketplace. And those disruptors are, have all come into our sitting rooms, you know, and are all available to us, increasingly, by the way, in lockdown. And, and we go, well, if they can do it, why can't you? Mm. Um, and that's a good question. That is a good question. You know, I, I used to, my, my version of that was, why can't I tweet my doctor? Because yeah. it's probably convenient. I ought to be able to. Um, and, and now we've actually got to a point where, yes, you can have that kind of, that sort of you know, immediate outreach and, and, and all that kind of stuff. So the gap pre-COVID was quite big between those that did it and those that didn't and were a little bit, you know, upset that they couldn't. But as we know, that acceleration on the digital transformation agenda has really taken off across the marketplace. And it's not just the disruptors. We're all disrupting ourselves by doing that. We've all done a TARDIS type six years and six months, you know, evolution um, and gotten there very quickly. And we've, we've tasted what it feels like and like what we see. And that will not now stop. You know, if anything, we're going to still keep uh, spending the money and going down that particular direction. So. In that, you know, and, and again, well, however you try to deal with customer service, it kind of reinvents its value just as you think it's about to die. You know, voice is dead, long live voice. Now it might re-manifest itself as digital voice, but you know, natural language is now so smart, it sounds like you are. And actually, if you go and talk to a few of the people who have been in lockdown, they will say, we've rediscovered the, the value of live voice mm. for the vulnerable customer. Mm. Uh, and we never thought we'd ever say that. We thought our job was to actually try and build the web chat and everything else up. Yeah. So just as you think it's dead, something new comes through. Same thing with customer service. Again, you know, who, who would have guessed how important that was um, keeping customers on side and dealing with unknowns and, you know, one of the topics I'm just about to swim into, I've written the white paper and just about to do the webinar is Brexit. You know, I mean, the pandemic, oh gosh, here's the next one. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and how are you gonna survive that in terms of the disruption that your customers will experience in B2B and B2C? And they're gonna to talk to you about it. So how are you gonna scale it? How are you gonna filter out the people who need to speak to people? How are you gonna proactively anticipate? And 
That means all the AI stuff and seeing patterns and then how you're going to do self-service that doesn't require still talking to people because you didn't quite trust it or it didn't quite do it. You know, very, very compelling um, reasons to get it right. And if you do get it right, a really significant impact on the way that customers see brands. Because right now, brands that don't step up and have a sense of purpose around of customers and employees get the thumbs down. Brands that aren't seen to care get the thumbs down. Uh, and customer services probably become one of the most significant ways in which most customers recently have gone, I like that brand or I disapprove of it. So we keep finding our value being you know, reinvented. And I, I certainly hope in this next phase with the investment in the right gen of tech, an upgrade in the culture, uh, and also I think a tightening through budget and CX of the relationship we have with sales and marketing, so it just becomes actually customer facing. I think that the, all the things that will conspire to make and reinvent the contact center into something which is really significantly different. It attracts a different audience. Um, you know, if we do manage to get our self-service working, we should only have, uh, a, we should have a much smaller amount of inbound requiring live assistance. And that will be around the emotive, the complex, you know, and when it matters to the relationship. And if that's the job again, then I back to the original point about communication skills. It's an honorable profession in that sense. It's a very skilled profession. It requires real input and rather like any form of high performance, a very precise level and type of support. And, you know, sometime soon people should be paying for that in a way that isn't true right now. And when we've got there, I think you'll attract a whole new generation of people that aren't just, you know, I'm doing call centers until I get a real job. Yeah. All that mindset around of that, unfortunately. Uh, and, and we've reinvented the wheel almost full circle. So anyway, there's a few thoughts in terms of how, you know, I, I'm sort of trying to row it back to where it once was in a sense, but also reposition it into a, the more modern context that we now find ourselves in. And it irritates the heck out of me to hear contact centers and then digital. I mean, that's just a nonsense as well. It's a hub, you know, yeah. it's, a, it's a hub for everything. And, and leaders who are doing it really need to grasp that one and also move from reactive to proactive, move from working harder to smarter and make it a place where the rest of the organization is jealous and wants to join in. That's my vision and aspiration for it. And where does something that you've been talking about recently at some events fit into that, the, the concept of emotive CX? Where does that all fit where in? Where does that fit in? Yeah, so tracking back to the point I just made, I do think that there is now a serious movement in the way that we deliver service away from just being live. Um, and I don't think anybody um, in, these, in the customer service community welcomes dealing with stuff that essentially could be delivered in an automated way. It doesn't make any sense at all. It's stressful, it's boring on both sides, neither customer nor employee uh, win. So naturally, if we start to see that either eliminated, if we get really smart or at least dealt with by self-serve or proactive, that means we have a different type of conversation. And in fact, the success that we're seeing in terms of call lengths growing <laughs> indicates the right calls are beginning to now travel to people. So it seems out of kilter, doesn't it? I think that's something where you can tell as a society when things feel strange in your interactions. So, for example, a exaggerated example, but if someone asked me to fax them something now, I would yeah. 
think they they'd been hit on the head um and that kind of point you make about contacting a contact center as a customer to do something quite banal and simple does seem strange now and i think that's probably an indication of where we've got to and what customer expectations are yeah i mean really if you if you uh again let's say contact sensors did not exist and somebody had a bright idea what would it now look like and the answer would be if we just look to customers it would be mobile first it yeah. would probably be app first um it would be automated uh, anticipatory you know easy um it would just fundamentally be different at the end of the day and somewhere just in case any of that didn't work might be somebody <laughs> you know That's a really nice exercise a mental exercise isn't it i love that yeah and it, it would just be in architected in, in in an entirely different way um <clears throat> you know and there's that famous point isn't it if it wasn't the fact that this is where i am now i wouldn't start from here if i had a choice <laughs> you know that that kind of mindset uh, and i think a lot of us feel that you know we're, we're trapped and john said and i think has always you know had a very good basic observation to make that call centers in in the context of failure demand nurture and fuel their own problem um, and businesses allow that to take place in a way that's utterly unnecessary um, and that perpetuates the thing but so that's what so so one of the reasons is that the the nature of needing intervention um, with people is changing mm. but but i would also say i don't see emotive cx as being purely the delivery of live interaction i also see it increasingly important in terms of the way that we deliver our self-service and our proactive and and that then addresses a broader point which is i think if you look at cx um, as an industry um it it's you know it, it's gone through tremendous transformation and I, I it would be very churlish of me to say nothing's happened because it has happened but it's still a pretty new industry in many respects um and one of the things of course we've had to work out is what do we mean by customer experience and going back to my my experiential days i was always interested when customer experience turned up and thought well what the heck are they mean going to mean by that yeah you know i bet they reduce that down to something really banal and and certainly as you scale anything in life there's always the horror that you know the purity of the original you know group that brought it to to into being uh, are always aghast the fact that it's gotten consumerized and, and and to that extent you know it turns banal and customer experience i think has um as it has in, become a process of getting things working in actual corporate cultures has has ignored the emotive side and gone for relatively easier targets and if you listen to bruce temkin talk um who has done a lot of really good pioneering work and simplifying ideas and standardizing ideas he's over at uh, qualtrics right now as their head of um experience management and and he's always said he divides experience into three components actually forest to do as well it's all about success and outcome it's all about effort and it's all about the emotion and that's a very good way by the way in which you can deconstruct what experience means in terms of you know identifiable measurable elements that that add up to that thing and having tracked that and asked people how as consumers we feel that uh, the brands that we interact with have succeeded we have increasing progress on the first two which is that we are getting more of the outcome and we are getting a reduction in effort and to that extent by the way i would say that i think reduction of effort 
ACA frictionless engagement has been the number one target of all digital transformation. Yeah. <clears throat> and so therefore we have seen a real improvement in getting rid of some of the really clumsy stuff that we used to be doing. However, family, it looks a little different for everyone. For some, it's mom and dad. For others, roommates who feel like family. And for others, it's your significant other, their golfing buddies, your children, a high school soccer team starting lineup, and oh look, they're all taking you up on the offer to stay for dinner, really testing the limits of that phrase, the more the merrier. But no matter where you call home, GEICO makes it easy to bundle and save on home and car insurance. Easier than making three frozen pizzas and assorted frozen veggies into a cohesive meal. Emotion has not necessarily been uh, uh, addressed in the same way. And indeed, if indicatively the other two have advanced up to 40-50% of customers saying that, less than 10% say we see anything happening on the emotive. Now, what's interesting is brands also do understand emotion. And indeed, it's a good time to be having this conversation because we're just into the season at which emotion is is massively exploited, particularly (laughs) in the retail context of that very soppy kind of video that they push out to hit the heartstrings to make you spend more than you should do at Christmas. It's a time-honored tradition to allow us to get duped into that. And in that sense, branding you know, really good quality branding. And if you go back to, you know, above the line advertising in its in its heyday of the 90s and the thousands with Saatchi and Saatchi and all those kind of people, you know, there were tremendous creatives who used to really imagine the most amazing ways of, of, of presenting a brand in a highly emotive way. And they got the point that if you can connect to customers like that, you're there. Now, What to me is interesting is that branding at that time didn't really give a monkey particularly about delivering that promise. It was all about articulating that promise. It was somebody else's problem to deal with that. And customer service in a a sense then picked up downstream the problems that came from the gap between those two things. And I think CX operationally has been focused upon the delivery of the promise, Um, quite rightly so, and has done an awful lot to, to, to close that particular gap. But hasn't done a lot as far as uh, emotion is concerned. And so my point or point of observation was to say, you know, um, I think there is an opportunity to do something here because if you think about a contact center, you don't engage with a contact center as a a sort of a a celebration of your life. You don't phone it us as a hotline and say, my life's really working well today. Just wanted to let you know, yeah, Yeah, thank you. It's not that kind of gig, it's a gig thing. Something hasn't worked. And, and as a rough estimation, more people are going to feel you know, negative about things not working than positive. And indeed, there's that whole slew of data that we see these days, which is how many strikes before you're out. And that data I've seen from all sorts of different sources, which, by the way, if you still see the same signal from different sources over time, to me, that's research. That tells you something's going down. And depending which you believe, you've got no more than three strikes before a bad service experience results in a customer disappearing. And if you believe individual you know, bits of research, then apparently, apparently the Brazilians, even with the brands that they are most personally passionate about, just have one and you're gone. Really? So you know, that's highly significant if that data is accurate. Mm. You know, and you go, why why have you got this multi-million pound <clears throat> CX stuff going down and branding stuff going down 
if indeed we're delivering poor experiences lots and lots of times because they're just walking out the back door if that data is correct. Mm. And, and so why are we missing a trick here? <clears throat> so in a defense position, why aren't we recognizing both the fact that customers have got emotive, uh, sorry, functional needs, which we know, but also emotive needs, yeah? And, and, and recognize that those need to be addressed as well. So if you say, right, that makes a difference to our behavior, i.e. I'm gonna stick around or not stick around, it's gonna make a difference to whether or not I'm an advocate, whether or not I forgive you, whether or not I trust you. And all of that correlation, by the way, is researched and evidenced, right? So if that's the case, and every single action, either like a blue Peter thermometer, adds to or detracts from, and by the way, you don't know whether or not it's just the one event or an accumulation before it gets so brittle, it goes and snaps and you're away. It means every single interaction counts, not in the sense that you spent X number of seconds on it, but the impact you had on that customer as an asset to the business in terms of lifetime value. So a contact center in that context is either in enhancing or destroying value. Mm. Now that is an interesting strategic idea if it can get reduced to KPIs, measurement and best practice. And that's what really inspired me. And I thought, gosh, you know what? We might be able to take the call center, get it on up to speed on this idea and then plug it into Enterprise CX before those guys come knocking on the door and saying, hey, by the way, why don't we do this? Um, and you know, with interaction analytics, we're getting to the point where they can certainly do sentiment. Yeah. The ones that slightly exaggerate say they can do emotion. We're getting there. And that means it becomes a scalable thing. In your line of work, it means you can rely upon that tool set to start to incorporate that dimension in the evaluation of an interaction. Um, instinct tells us that how you feel absolutely influences outcomes at the end of the day. Yeah. Um, and... Um, and so, so that's the first part. Can can we spot it, uh, and and should we? And by the way, if we if we can, what's our current state of capability? And slightly stereotyping, I would say most call center leaders, if you ask them, would go, "I'm jolly glad," and I can point you out the people who are empathetic in the call center. Yeah. Put the other way around, we tolerate people who are functionally efficient but don't make that connection yeah. and we still think that's okay yeah. so if every single interaction works that means we've got to have a management process getting it right each time because we're either going up or going down those scales and we need to spread that capability across everybody interacting in that way now i would be the first to say that if we're still doing simple stuff through live that's not going to be a be all and end all event i just want it even so, I have an expectation it's it's simple. And if your process is still horribly complicated, you will probably still trigger a negative emotion. So funnily enough, we're still back into, do I recognize it, acknowledge it, etc. So that's the first part of the story, if you want. And the second part is then just relying upon some pretty simple psychology, which people like uh, Kahneman and people have introduced, which is the nature of uh, experience management and the way that the brain works and leveraging some of the stuff that um, Lisa Barrett has introduced, Feldman Barrett, who's a very influential neuroscientist. And the Kahneman work is, is, is interesting because it talks about um, peak end rule, which is something I think quite a few of us have heard of. And the underlying stuff 
the, the research is interesting. It, it says that, it's actually very obvious this, it says that your brain is wonderful, it's got about 86 billion neurons, it can store a lot, but by the way, it has got a finite amount it's going to store. So the brain decides to prioritize and it prioritizes based on its central mission and its central mission is to keep you and I out of harm's way, yeah. i.e. alive. And, and therefore it has a propensity to record things that look threatening, whether that's physically threatening, the old saber tooth, as we know, cognitively threatening or even emotively threatening. Uh, and it will record those, which is actually also why customer service is a, is a zero-sum game, because we tend to remember the negative more than the positive. You know, and we know this, the psychology of the really clever folk doing holidays will tell you that if you don't do something new in the second week, the customer doesn't think it was of value because they can't, they don't clock the second week, they yeah. discount it because there's nothing new in terms of a, di uh, a diversion. And, and so interestingly, our brain works on an exception basis you know of all the moment by moment experiences we have in the day called the experiencing self we will only actually commit potentially commit to memory a very small fraction and as we get older less and less because we've been there done that got the memory and therefore it's acting to keep us safe um, younger you know minds and spirits tend to absorb much more because we're still out there learning so at the end of the day interestingly what tends to take place is we have a memory of an event which then becomes our belief that that was the event itself and the things that typically we will remember in an event are the outliers the brain is lazy it doesn't want to use too much of that fuel it will spot the obvious so it will remember endpoints and by the way if you're a scriptwriter that's why you make seasonal finales so extreme because it becomes a proxy for remembering how much you enjoyed that box set or you didn't. Even more important now, given how much we're all watching as well. Too right. So therefore, endpoints and outliers. So if you have a, a bad process that you know irritates people, particularly if I have to redo it, you know, we make a mistake or whatever like that, that will be embedded as one of the things likely to qualify for being part of that memory. So therefore, we know memory is not actually what the event was. Ask a policeman who's got 12 witnesses and assuming good intent from each of them, he'll end up or she will end up with 12 versions of what went on. Yeah. yeah? And so we have a version of what went on in that particular service or sales experience. Now, the second thing to say is we can nudge people towards how that memory is captured. And if you start and end with a negative emotive state, that's not going to be as good to your loyalty as ending in a more positive emotive state. Now, I'm not saying, by the way, everyone ends up with a rah-rah, smile-as-you-dial approach to this. That ain't going to happen. But if, for example, I'm disappointed, I can end up being encouraged. Yeah. If, I, if I feel ignored, I can end up feeling listened to, you know, um, a an appropriate transformation of that emotive state. And to that extent, we can play our job, therefore, in delivering not just the functional outcome, but the emotive one as well. And so to my mind, we elevate the nature of a conversation um, to, to one where we are spotting not just the functional need, but the emotive need, and also transforming that customer's emotive state over the course of that interaction towards the most positive one that we can do. And if you start to then do your analysis around of journeys, 
you will typically find that customers have one or two dominant emotions at the beginning. And that gives you this trigger to then think about an appropriate dominant set of emotions at the end. And that's enough of a framework to start educating, assessing, training, encouraging and developing, and then verifying through some form of voice of customer as is there any connection between the way that we leave you and the way you evaluate us. And then after that point, is there any relationship over time between the way you evaluate us and the way you behave in terms of lifetime, advocacy, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And if you can get to that point, then you have closed the, the, the loop between contact center as a, as a cost and contact center as a value generator. I mean, in this scenario that you're painting, if I'm the, if I'm the agent and I've been recruited and trained to recognize and facilitate my emotional intelligence, is the way that I could positively influence a customer's emotional state through language, through displaying empathy where required? How, how, how best do you influence? How, how does that work? So I've, um, I've been very careful in the work that I have done to date not to talk about um, uh, EQ. And it's not because I'm against it, it's, it's, it's more because I'm actually rather in, in awe of it. And having done some of that back in the day and been a trainer myself, I am under no illusion about the size of that goal in terms of personal development. Mm. Uh, and I think it's, it's it, if, if an organization absolutely decides that the full package of the six competency areas sitting in EQ is absolutely what you're committed to, or you want to take a couple of those over time and develop people, so be it. But it's not a trivial understanding uh, undertaking, mm. of which empathy is probably the most favorite one right now. And as far as I'm concerned, you know, empathy is the capacity to imagine what another person's feeling, that, 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 you know, where they're at, mm. feeling thoughts and the whole damn thing. Mm. And to me, that's another way of expressing a skill, which is called active listening. You know, and, and one of the competencies that I define in, in Emotive CX is the ability to hear even the unstated needs. And that happens in really good conversations. You can hear what's not being said. And if you think about that, also transmitted maybe over a phone, which is geographically dispersed, that's an extraordinary human capability to hear what's not being said, or at least open up a conversation to say, I don't know, I might be off beam here, but are you feeling this? Are you thinking that? It seems to me that, you know, and using those kind of facilitative kind of questions. So I didn't go down that route. Uh, I went down uh, another route, again, sort of based on the work that I did in social customer service, where I got people to say, look, you know, the, how you address people on social really has got consequences because if you get it wrong, boom, it goes wrong. So listen and watch. And by the way, it's text mainly. So where are the clues? The language the customers used, the emotive, um, the icons, the emojis that may or may not be there, the name, the handle of the person tells you a lot, the picture that they've given it. You know, all of those are clues. And then culturally, quite different. The, the, the Brits tend to be very indirect, you know, in terms of the way they express disapproval. It might have come to your attention that. Mind you, these days, it's, it's full on, you know, profanities <laughs> throughout the globe. But um, you do find it interesting to, to, to see what real emotive intent was. And I've run loads of sessions where I say, right, here are the ones I've gathered from around the world. They're all high drama 
you know, sort of problems like washing machines. Did you ever know that a washing machine, you know, the piece of glass that you look through when you open the door, that can break. And I got pictures of people, you know, on Twitter with that, that thing broken going, really? oh, kids in here with bare feet. And you go, you know, and, 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 and people on the customer service side going, I'm sorry about that. Can you DM me and send me your name? <laughs> yeah. And what's really interesting is when you unpack it like that, clearly everyone goes, oh, my God. But actually, that was one of 3,000 I dealt with today. I'm in a processing mode. I'm not in a connecting mode. Yeah. I miss it by a country mile. Mm. Because reality, you're only picking up what you want to pick up. You know, we talked about that part there. So you get people to sink into it. And you say, what can you really see about not just the situation, but the backstory? Yeah, I mean, I've got a great one around of um, a kitchen which has been built. And this lady's utterly, utterly fed up with the fact that it was cut down to the wrong size and the doors don't freaking work. And she's, you know, and the person just says, oh, sorry, can you DM me? Um, you know, blah, blah, blah. It just misses it entirely. Because what's the backstory? Well, the backstory, if you start to think about it, is this. Are kitchens cheap or expensive? Expensive. How long do people plan it for? Mm. How central is a kitchen to someone's experience? How important is it as part of your social showing offness? You know, it's huge. The backstory is I've spent a lot of money. I had put a lot of trust in you. You've now screwed it up for me. That's the backstory. Does that give you a clue as to how the customer might be feeling? Too right. So part of my technique is, you know, understanding in the first instance and connecting the empathy bit is much more dynamic than going sad, happy. It's actually trying to unpack the scenario. I'll give you another one. You know, oftentimes back in the day, we were waiting for a service engineer to turn up, taking half a day off. What happens if that person's late, which they frequently are. If you live in the shoes, by the way, of the engineer, you know why they're late, but they were helping the lady out at nine o'clock. They never got there for the 12 o'clock one on time. But the fact is I suffered that, I wasn't there, on time for a meeting I was delivering on behalf of my team to my manager, and I got bollocked by my team and by my manager. So I'm not just upset with you being late, I'm also upset with the fact I let somebody else down. I would have never have known. And that puts a particular degree of anger because there's a difference between the frustrated up to being raged, mm. enraged. And so part of the, um, what you call the, the, the um, the fluency, the emotive um, granularity, the emotive language that people have got is to be able to recognize the different states, you know, within the family of emotion, like sadness, grief, anger, et cetera, et cetera. And, and, and so that's all of that. And, and the idea being is that you should be able to try to um, do a series of questions to your point. You should be able to probe and go through a sort of a disciplined structure of a conversation to establish need, both functional and emotive, to verify it's true, because you know if you're gonna do real good listening, you always check it out, check it out, check it out. And then finally deliver and try to then steer that customer to the most positive emotive outcome. And I've packaged that up into a little model called you know, a conversational flow. Um, so it certainly employs many of the techniques that you might see sitting on Jonty's site, you know, about the 25 words for emote, for empathy, that, that kind of a, approach and the kind of training that I think most people have managed to afford to give their people at the front line. But they are, if you want, the, you know, the, the, the um, aspects of the overall competency that you require. Um, and to my mind, in the way that you can train somebody to listen, 
you can also train somebody in their emotive range. Uh, and that particular piece of uh, uh, research comes from this work, as I mentioned, from Lisa Barrett, Feldman Barrett. And she's actually come up with some very radical research in, in the area of emotion, because up to quite recently, we had this view that emotions were wired into the brain and that we all expressed emotion in a very, very similar, if not actually identical way. Things like Don't Lie to Me, if you remember that program, yeah. that predicated on the ability to be able to see another person's emotion and therefore know exactly what's going on. Her work and her research says actually that is not the case. It's much more like population thinking, which is to say a giraffe is a population within which there is no such thing as an average giraffe. Yes. You know, they're all individual giraffes. And there is no such thing as, an as, a, as a common way of expressing anger. Um, there is certainly anger, otherwise you and I couldn't have a conversation about it, but there is individual expression and how you express it and how I isn't predicated upon the way that my mouth moves and my eyebrows move uh, in a certain kind of a way. Unfortunately, facial AI right now assumes that and is trying to drive algorithms to tell, um, um, well, actually, there's a whole thing going on with driverless cars right now. We are going to be apparently sitting in them, having our emotions scrutinized in real time and that data flogged to third parties. It remains to be seen. But <laughs> the Americans, for example, tried to use that technology to tell whether or not bad, quote unquote, people were coming through their customs uh, and therefore to be able to stop them at source before they came in and blew them up, only to discover that actually, if you have a picture like a cartoon of a certain face going, that's somebody who looks guilty, it ain't, gonna, it ain't gonna work in practice. So one of the interesting things about that is that in fact, emotion from a brain's point of view is a learnt capability mm -hmm. as part of an overall response to calibrate with what goes on all the time inside our bodies, the way we feel, our tummy and stuff like that and is, is designed to help us translate what is the incoming in terms of wavelengths, chemicals, cool smells, you know, and all the rest of it, and say what's going down. Because the brain, I mean, she says it in a beautiful way. She said, imagine you're a brain. The first problem you've got is you're locked in a box called a skull. <laughs> and you've got to figure out what's going to, and you've got to keep this, this lump of meat alive. What are you going to do? <laughs> And as part of that responsiveness, basically, the function and role of memory is to build up a set of, you know, scenarios you can test the inbound against. And in an incredible way, which really is mind blowing when you consider it, we are creating wave upon wave of real time predictions. And indeed, what we're doing right now is I am simulating you right now, uh, you know, and listening to your voice based upon all my prior experience of you and other people sounding like you. And when I listen to you again, I'm going, does that still sound like Martin talking to me? And I'm going in real time, yeah. Now I'm not making any conscious effort to do that at all. That's outside of my consciousness. If it was, I would be dead from exhaustion. But she, her basic no notion is saying, that is indeed how we generate reality. And, we, and, and within that particular extraordinary construct of the brain comes emotion as another sense check to give us information about how we should appropriately respond. Because the whole business about, you know, cortisol, fight, flight, blah, 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 or whatever is one of the roles of the brain in a very practical way to keep us alive is what she calls body budgeting, which is basically, do I send more energy here? Do I slow that down here? Do I do this? Do I do that? Because by the way, we have a limit on this. 
you know, we live in an extraordinary consumer-based world, but historically we have a very limited amount of fuel. We don't want to waste that uh, by any stretch of the imagination. So emotion actually in that sense is all part of alert response, which we pass on through family and we learn it through family. So uh, mad and bad or sad and mad, I think, uh, is difficult to disambiguate for a, 60, for a six-year-old, but they learn it afterwards. 13-year-olds yeah. typically get into disgust in a big way, as you well know. You know, yeah. my daughter totally demonstrates disgust at my inability to understand anything, et cetera, et cetera. Now, what's interesting to me, and this remains to be proven, and you guys might enjoy this in the work that you do, is if that's the case, that we actually learn our emotive range through our family upbringing in, in all the wonderful ways that families can be, maybe you lived in a family where there was an awful lot of incidents of grief. And you are very familiar with the 55 versions of that, but you didn't live in, an, in, in, in a, an environment where there was a lot of anger. So actually, that's a bit of a blank spot for you. Now, if you come into a contact center world where we're talking about emotive, your range is going to be probably a function of the upbringing that you've had, which comes back to the fact that we need to develop and skill people because they might well have blind spots of not really recognizing what that looks like. Uh, and if you compound the fact that also the way in which we express emotion isn't standardized, there is significant deviation and that plays into a diversity and inclusion you know, agenda significantly, generationally and ethnically, I think, you've actually got some wonderful um, opportunity to develop people. And the other thing that has motivated me to do this is if we can get this thing up and running, and that will take some time. And if we can develop people in the way that I'm starting to suggest, I think one of the things that call centers then become is a breeding ground for a really quite extraordinarily developed human beings. And in that sense, I would say you will have contributed to their overall you know, EQ quota. I love that. Martin, it's been fascinating. We're going to have to diarise another, another uh, episode to hear, to hear more because I feel like I've I've learned a lot. I'm, I'm going to enjoy listening back to this one, even hearing my own voice, which you never get used to. Um, thank you very much. It's been brilliant. And I'm sure if people want to hear more, they can. What's the best way for them to contact you? Well, uh, yes, contact me on um, martin at brainfoodconsulting.com. Uh, if you are a LinkedIn person, I'm fairly active there. The website is brainfoodextra.com. Um, and I'm, you know, running all sorts of courses on this right now. Um, the CCMA is doing some stuff if you happen to be a member as well. So you can come along to one of their sessions or just talk to me directly. But I'll be more than delighted. It's one of my current passions. I'm nurturing it over time. So when you're ready, be delighted to talk to you. And thank you, Martin, very much for the opportunity. No, it's been great. Martin, thanks very much. Bye. Bye-bye. Hope you enjoyed that episode. What an interesting guy Martin Hill Wilson is. Um, really some interesting stuff there. If you like the podcast, please do subscribe on whatever platform you use. It's just me trying to make my way through this, providing you with interesting content. So any uh, reviews, welcome. Um, even if it's not a five-star if it's lower than that, please do get in touch and tell me how it can be better rather than just posting a, a one or two star. Um, seems a bit mean. I think we can all be a bit kinder at the moment. Um, anyway, hope you enjoy it. Uh, great episode. Great to have Martin on. Please do get in touch with him if you want to find out more. Thanks. Bye-bye. Take care, everyone.